Today, we start our study in Acts 10, moving on to a new, a new section uh, that is, as I said in the prayer, viewed by many as the most important section in Acts, and therefore also in the history of Christianity. And uh, this is going to be covering the first outreach to Gentiles, as represented by the centurion Cornelius, his family, and his friends. Now, I can see you all getting agitated and uh, wanting to call out, but Mike, Philip the Evangelist has already gone to the Samaritans and converted them. Well, you know, that is true. Uh, Well, it is true that Philip went to the Samaritans. We actually do not know the timeline because Luke is not teaching timeline history, but rather facets of Christian life. So we really don't know what went on where and how. And uh, you say, what about the Ethiopian eunuch? You know, well, you know, there's him. But again, Luke isn't necessarily teaching a timeline. The truth be told, we do not know just when Christian outreach to the Gentiles began. We do, however, know who initiated the first outreach to the Gentiles. Now, you know, the Apostle Paul is universally acknowledged as the Apostles to the Gentiles. Chapter 13 and on in Acts will be dedicated to Paul's missionary outreach across the Gentile world. But who was the first to labor among them? Was Paul, or was it Philip, or as we see here, or was it Peter? Keep these things in mind as we go through to the end of the sermon. Our passage today is just two verses, uh, Acts 10, 1 through, uh, 1 through 2. And let's read them and then break them down piece by piece. Verse 1 through 2. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Last week we covered just a single verse, so we're doubling our output today, so we'll be done with this in no time. Verse 1. Yeah. As my notes say, uh, 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 hectic pace, so buckle up, okay? Uh, verse 1a says, At Caesarea... In our study in Acts 9, we learned that Caesarea was located on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the middle of the plains of Sharon. Caesarea is 75 miles northwest of Jerusalem, so, you know, it's three or four days away. Its location on the Mediterranean uh, had been known as Straiton's Tower. It was a small, insignificant naval station, I'm going to assume for the Romans, though... These people are not real clear on all of these things. It was unsuitable for a major harbor, however. It was a shallow, south-facing bay. And and because of this, when the south wind blew, it blew the waves. We have a sailor here, and he'll know about waves. And they blew into this harbor, making it unsuitable for a major, to be a major harbor. 
But that was before King Herod, we know him as Herod the Great, got his hands on it. We know King Herod primarily as a bloodthirsty tyrant. And I'm not going to dissuade you of this. He was a bloodthirsty tyrant. But he is known in the history of Judaism as a great builder. He undertook colossal projects in Israel, building, as we would refer to now, the infrastructure. He's the one who built what is now called Solomon's Temple, rebuilding the destroyed. He built what we now know as the Temple of Herod, rebuilding Solomon's Temple after it had been destroyed twice. And it's the Temple Mount that we go today that he extended, made larger, and rebuilt. In the years uh, 22 through 10 BC, Herod began building the city of Caesarea, which was called Caesarea Maritima, which I'm going to assume is Maritime Caesarea, or Sea Town Caesarea. It was named after Caesar Augustus, the son of Julius Caesar. Augustus was the Caesar on the throne when the Roman Senate named Herod king of the Jews. So this was just a, a the Senate, Herod was in Rome and there, uh, and they said, oh, you know, we're naming you the king of the Jews. Now Herod came from a nominally Jewish family. They were not religious. It is assumed that his father or grandfather were converts to Judaism. So the relationship was not deep. He had a closer patronage to Rome than he did to the Jewish people because it was Rome who buttered his bread, as it were. So Herod dredged the shallow harbor at Straton's Tower, and then he built a seawall on the south to protect from the uh, southern waves, and, it, and then proceeded to build what became the seat of the Roman government. Jerusalem was the seat of the Jewish government. Caesarea was the home of the Jewish uh, of the uh, Roman uh, government. And because of those Roman prefects, or whatever you want to call them, who ruled from Caesarea, there was always a contingent of Roman soldiers keeping the peace and protecting Caesarea and the Roman governors. Verse 10b says, uh, continues on, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. And now Cornelius is his family name. It is not his first name. It is a sort of a last name. But what it really is, is the name of the house he belonged to in in Italy, in Rome. There were lots of Corneliuses. It was a very, very popular name because the Roman general and statesman Lucius Cornelius Sulla. We just call him Sulla. He was a very famous Roman general, very successful. He had 10,000 slaves because of his conquests. And he freed them all. And they all took the house name of Cornelius. So there are a lot of people named Cornelius floating around across the Roman Empire because of this act. We do not know Cornelius's other names. Like I say, 
Sola was Lucius Cornelius Sola. We don't know this Cornelius' name other than what they give us here. Now, Cornelius was continuing on a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 men. Okay? 6,000 men made up a Roman legion. This was divided into 10 cohorts. And it says that Cornelius was of what was called the Italian cohort. A cohort contained about 600 men. Out of that, a centurion commanded a hundred of those men. And it was, that was called a, uh, basically a centuri, which we get century from. Centurion just simply means one who commands a hundred people. This then is what Cornelius was, a Roman army commander of 100 men, a job with great responsibility. Neil's just finished up a command of 60 men and women in his, in his first command in the Air Force. He may or may not have alluded to it as herding cats when you get that many people underneath you. A centurion was a non-commissioned officer. F.F. Bruce says that basically you could consider him like an army captain of today. And I would say maybe that was true in F.F. Bruce's time. But captains nowadays are managers. Okay, They're managing an office. I would say that this centurion was more like a master sergeant in our armed forces today. And to give you an idea what a master sergeant is, they, like Cornelius, are older men. Uh, Master sergeants are often in their 40s in the army. They're a non-commissioned officer of of the highest ranking of the sergeants. Uh, I once asked Niels, I said, how is it running, you know, running your, uh, your flight? And he said, well, it would be impossible without a good master sergeant. And because I'm nosy, I said, do you have a good master sergeant? And Neil said, I have the best master sergeant in the Air Force. He said, there cannot possibly be a better master sergeant in the Air Force than my master sergeant, and he makes my job easy. That's what a master sergeant does. It makes life easier for the commanders above them. In his histories, Roman historian Polybius describes centurions in this way, and this is a quote from his book. He said that uh, centurions are not so much venturesome daredevils as natural leaders of a steady and sedate spirit. Not so much men who will initiate attacks and open the battle as men who will hold their ground when worsted and hard-pressed and be ready to die at their posts. So they weren't the Navy SEALs. They weren't the special forces. These were men who were commanding and could be counted on to keep their heads and stay at their post even if they were going to be killed. They were not one given to running. Centurions were respected within their communities and within their commands. And with 
with that respect came a certain social status. They were not your common soldiers, you know, uh, common phrases, uh, soldiers and dogs keep off the grass, and that's from the, that's from the American army, okay? It was worse in Roman times because they took some of the worst of the worst, freed slaves, etc. But centurions had a respect that came with social status. They were, um, as I said earlier, they were generally older men, and with that responsibility, responsibility came a learned wisdom. It is, um, might come as a surprise to you how many times centurions show up in the New Testament alone. Okay? Because I, I did a search, and actually it's something that people will, that do studies on. Centurions, seven different centurions show up in the New Testament. And consider this. They were, you know, the Romans were despised. The whole reason the Jews were looking for the Messiah was that the Messiah was going to rise up and kick the uh, Romans out of Israel. And yet, in all seven instances, well, there's six instances, but seven centurions that show up in the Bible, they are never spoken of badly. In fact, most of them are honored in Scripture. And with that, we'll leave the seven centurions and maybe visit them a little bit later. Verse 24 says, Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household. That's 2A. Uh, the poet Virgil had a picture of the Gentile world as one that stretched out its hands in longing for the other shore. You know, the Gentiles were not as the Jews depicted them. The Jews despised the Gentiles, just despised them. If they were traveling through Gentile lands before they would enter Israel, they would shake the dust off their shoes. Gentiles would not go, I mean, Jews would not go into a Gentile's house. They would not eat a Gentile's food. They despised the Gentiles. And yet, the Gentiles are depicted as stretching out their hands in longing for the other shore. This is what Cornelius has done. He's gone so far in his devotion and love of God that he is all but Jewish, okay? Not just that, but he has brought his household, whatever family he had, and servants as well on the faith journey that he had undertaken, okay? Now remember that a centurion leads by example, and their, their life is their testimony of, of righteousness to the Roman Empire and fidelity to those around them. And this, this force of personality has, I would say, infected his household, but infected is the wrong word, cured his household, brought them along with him in his worship of God. Not only was he devout and God-fearing, but he backed that up with action. Verse 2b says, 
He gave alms generously to the people. And what this means, when you look at the wording of this, isn't just alms to beggars in the street. What he is doing is supporting Jewish people here. When it says he gives generously to the people, they're talking about the Jewish people here. Make no mistake, Jesus told parables about how one is to give alms, right? With his disciples in the temple, he he pointed out a rich man making a show of giving a large amount and a poor widow putting into the treasury just a single coin. And Jesus pointed out that the widow gave the greater amount because she gave all that she had. Jesus would have approved of Cornelius, for he was a joyful giver. Remember, he was not a Jew. They're assuming that he is a God-fearer. He's not even an official proselyte. He is worshiping God on his own. He is not under law to give anything to anybody. And yet, he is giving to the Jewish people. He gave to the people and he gave generously from his love of God to God's people. And finally, verse 2c says that he, quote, prayed continually to God. Okay, we're told in the, uh, in the New Testament, pray without ceasing. Cornelius prayed without ceasing. The ESV says continually. So I went to every other translation I could find to see what they said. And there's a reason for me looking this up. Other translations say constantly, always, regularly, when I went to the modern translation section of Bible Gateway, I expected to see them say that he was a prayer warrior. You know, we use that term nowadays, prayer warrior. Do you know what Luke actually called Cornelius? He called him a prayer warrior. Okay? So it's not a new term. And I've always hated the term prayer warrior for some reason. It sounds so so with it, so so 20th century, okay? That is the words that, that Luke actually used to the point that uh, one of my commentators pointed it out and, uh, and said, this is unique in all of scripture, okay, to be called a prayer warrior. So there is Cornelius, a centurion, a man devoted to God, A God-fearing man, generous to God with his tithe and his money. He has been seeking God, reaching out to him. And I was reading, you know, John MacArthur said that it is man's duty to reach out to God. It is what man has to do. He says, now, God has called his own from the foundation of the world. But it's man's duty to respond. And, and we've wrestled with this ourselves. You know, where does one stop and the other start? And John MacArthur, to his credit, says, we can't understand this, okay? We know what the Bible says about this. I've preached it myself. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. That's what we are to do. It says that God will save those who diligently or come to those who diligently seek him. 
That's in the Old Testament in a number of places. We know that we are to call on God. And it says that God will save those who call upon him. And how that works with being an elect person, we don't know how it all fits together. And, and John MacArthur, like I say, to his credit, says, it says this, and we don't know how it works out because our mind is not God's mind. But this is what it says. Now, as I mentioned earlier, centurions show up in six passages in the New Testament. The first time is in Luke 7 and 1 through 10. And I want you to pay attention to this. The first time a centurion shows up is is to Jesus. Luke 7, um, starting at verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And when they say servant here, just read slave. It was probably a slave, much as Sulla had 10,000 slaves, a centurion. Uh, This was probably a slave. When the centurion heard about Jesus... He sent to him elders of the Jews. Now that's the first thing to note. He sent elders of the Jews. And the Jews responded to this Roman centurion. He sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come out and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, these elders, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, and listen to this, he is worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, a centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority." with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So he sent Jewish elders, and like I say, and they went The Jewish elders spoke up for the centurion, a Gentile, a Roman, a soldier, saying, he is worthy. Now, that's that's a strange thing for for the Jews to say. And he loves our nation. He built our synagogue. I wonder if they had ever uttered those words before. So that's the first centurion in the New Testament and the first Gentile that Jesus talks to in his ministry that we're told of. Very first Gentile Jesus ever talked to. And the way Jesus spoke of him, hmm, sounds to me like that uh, centurion was a believer. Centurion number two is at the crucifixion of Jesus. In Matthew 27, 50 through 54, we see... 
And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So Jesus has just died. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Okay, so, centurion and the guards are in the cemetery where Jesus is buried. And suddenly the tombs open and the saints who have already died are raised and walk out of the tomb go into the city and appear to many when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place they were filled with awe and said truly this was the son of God so was this the first Gentile confession of who Jesus was I'm not sure the third centurion was Cornelius so we won't follow him the fourth is found in Acts 22 through uh, 25 through 29. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem at the temple. After being allowed to address the crowd, he was then taken by the Roman authority to the barracks, where he would be examined, and I love this, examined by flogging, okay, you know, Floggings will continue until morale improves. He should be examined by flogging. I don't know exactly what they expected him to say. And verse 25 says, But when they had stretched him out for the whips, which means tying him to a post in all likelihood, when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? See, the Romans could just about flog anybody they wanted for any reason, which is one of the reasons they were hated by the Jews, because they could do whatever they wanted, but not to a Roman citizen. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship that the, that the Roman official had, the tribune. He said, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him, and remember, examined by flogging, those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. The centurion did not just follow orders. He did not flog a man just because he could. Instead, he used his brain... And not just that, he managed to bring relief to Paul from a Roman flogging by appealing to the authorities. Now the 5th and 6th centurions are in Acts 23, 12-24, and this is just an abbreviated version. Uh, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. 
uh, Paul had irritated people once again. Uh, Paul is good at this. And um, they made a... Um, uh, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Uh, so they, they were not going to eat or drink. They were going to be there until Paul was dead. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. So these were, they were dedicated to the test. Now, the son of Paul's sister, it says, heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And so, so Paul's nephew tells everything that happens. And the tribune then called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers. Okay, I can do the math myself. Centurion, okay, 100 soldiers. Two centurions, 200 soldiers, okay? So he called two centurions and said, take 200 soldiers, which would have been their own men, with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And, and this they did. The centurions followed their orders. They, they, you see, first of all, they listened to Paul when he said, take, take my nephew to the uh, person. So the centurions were not knee-jerk soldiers. They were... They were responsible, and they did see Paul safely to the governor at Caesarea. And the last, the last centurion that shows up in the Bible is also in Acts 27, near the end of Paul's life. Uh, uh, Acts ends in uh, chapter 28 without a uh, final solution to Paul. But... Um, He's the only other centurion named in the Bible. Uh, and he is named probably because Luke is there with him. So Luke is on this, is with Paul, and this centurion is here, and it says, and this is uh, chapter 27, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So we have the name of this man. He's a Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramatium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So once again, we have a kind centurion. He is shown in a good light. He treated Paul with kindness. Later in the journey, their ship is caught up in a terrible storm for two weeks. And Paul, in typical Paul fashion, you know, gets up and addresses everybody and says, I told you we shouldn't go. <laughs> I told you the weather was going to turn bad here, you know. You should have listened to me, but if you do what I say, God has sent an angel to stand before me and told me what to do. And Acts, uh, continuing on in verses 39 to 44, it tells us, 
Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land. They, they came upon land when, when the light came up. They did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. Then they, then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck fast and would not move, and the stem and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Uh, losing a prisoner by escape, as you probably know from our, some of our other passages, was a death penalty for the Roman guard. And yet this centurion kept the soldiers, the scripture says, from carrying out their plan to kill all the prisoners. He determined that they would face losing the prisoners, and which apparently they did not. So, those are the seven centurions of the New Testament. Uh, not a negative word about any of them. All of them were of high character. Some were shown exercising great courage in their dealings with Jesus and the apostles. Instead of showing God's people chafing under Roman cruelty, in every single one of these cases, their kindness is stressed. Okay? Now, why? What is God showing us here? Back at the beginning of this sermon, I asked, who converted the first Gentile to Christianity? Was it Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch? Was it, was it Peter with uh, Cornelius? Paul is famously known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Did he do it? It was none of them. It was God. If you've been following along closely, who sent uh, Philip to the Ethiopian? God gave him a vision. said, you go to this road, at this crossroad, at noon, and speak to the guy who comes by. Right? God sent Philip to the Ethiopian. Who is going to... Well, unless you've read ahead in Acts... We haven't gotten there yet. But who sends Peter to Cornelius? God sends Peter to Cornelius. Not only that, he tells him exactly what's going to happen, that people are going to come, and we shall see what goes on next. The person who converted the first Gentile was God. God did not look on Gentiles the way Jews did. God did not dust his feet off. Yes, God hated the practices of the Gentiles in killing babies in the high places, in, the, in their worship of other gods. But he did not hate the Gentiles. He loved the Gentiles. And it's not like this was some kind of new thing with God, with, the, with Cornelius, or with the Ethiopian. Um, in Genesis 12.3, God says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
Psalm 22, 27-28 says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Deuteronomy, giving the lists of how you treat the Gentiles, the strangers among you, do not say, kick the dust off your feet and don't go into their houses. It says, cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, orphan, and widow. Daniel says, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is not one which will be destroyed. Isaiah says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, the ministers to him, who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, Everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. God, from the time of Genesis, was calling the Gentiles to be one of him. Philip did not convert the first Gentile to Christianity, neither did Peter. Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, He converted no one. God had called the Gentiles to be his people before the foundations of the world were laid. God uses laborers in his work, sending Philip down that road to the Ethiopian Peter, to Caesarea, Paul across the known world. But as Paul pointed out to the believers in Corinth, he says, I planted Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the increase. Amen. Let's close in prayer.